I was telling my sister about MVP two, you know, and I was like, yeah, yeah, you should show the kids, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I was like, yeah, MVP two MVP. I haven't seen, but I'm sure it's fine. You know, uh, I'm sure at least the three year old would want to watch a chimp. Right. Uh, and, you know, uh, they they let him watch a little show at dinner, you know, like when all the shit's going on. Mm-hmm. And Kellen, you know, they don't they don't have 2B, so they can't watch MVP 2, but MVP is on Amazon. And oh. so they put it on for the kids and it, it seems like they're enjoying they're enjoying it. And I and I go outside and then a few minutes later Kellen comes out, she's like I had to shut it off because Margot was complaining that it was really weird to watch a chimp eat human food when she's eating human food because there was like a <laughs> there was like a scene of Jack like with his handler like totally domesticated like wearing a watch you know like spaghetti yeah eating at a dinner table <laughs> and she was like mom this is weird turn it please turn it off <laughs> put me off my fucking spaghettios the policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve this order. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. You want to crown them? They crown your ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the streets. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, and with me today are Eric Marsh and Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic for the week. And the other two hosts are challenged with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic, push against the topic. We've had it all. It was my topic this week. It was my turn to pick the theme for the show. And as I mentioned last week, when we looked at The Great Outdoors, starring John Candy, it had, you know, filled me with uh, other, you know, visions of films that he'd been in. I was just sort of reflecting on John Candy, and and I had, you know, thought, oh man, what a fun film to look at uh, would be the 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 private detective film who's Harry Crumb that he's in. I think it's a really underrated film, but then it just sort of got me thinking about PIs in general, private dicks in cinema. And so uh, I had a taste for that. Uh, <laughs> it's a poor choice of words. <laughs> uh, yum, yum. I was thinking about private investigating uh, films, <laughs> private investigations on, on, on screen. I'm tripping over my words here. Now I'm just thinking about a the private taste dicks of private dicks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thinking about the taste of private dicks. Son of a bitch. Um, so yeah, I asked the boys to bring me movies uh, where the main characters were private eyes, private investigators. And they delivered with two films that I had never seen before. One that I had heard of, one that I was somewhat familiar with, uh, and another one that I was not at all familiar with, though I am familiar with 
the uh, the the stars of the films. Um, and so I, I think uh, without further ado, we should just jump right in. Just just crack the case. Just let's just get in there and see if we can uh, suss out uh, who done it this week on the gauntlet. Uh, why don't we start with Marsh? Why don't you tell us what what you brought to the table? Well, I'm a big fan of. Pulp Fiction and Private Eyes in print and on screen. So, you know, very selfishly for me, I was in my mind sort of like, uh, well, I want to watch something I haven't seen before, you know, something new. Because I've, I've seen a lot of the classic Private Eye films and uh, want to do uh, explore, uh, you know, territory I hadn't yet. And... Uh, I did a little sleuthing around, you know, and I want to uh, give a quick recommendation and shout out to Alan Rudolph's Love at Large, Ooh. streaming mm. on Tubi, starring Tom Berenger in uh, similar to one of the films we watched uh, for this episode, a kind of uh, P.I. film really uh, that is um, a romance underneath and it's got all these like overlapping surveillance going on and it's a it's a nice moody Rudolph film with a kind of comic uh, blundering Behringer performance as this out of time P.I. Uh, so check that out but I, I didn't pick that because I figured out, I'll just tell everyone to watch it, you know? Yeah. Um, and ultimately settled on a film that Ryan brought to uh, my attention, uh, and that is the 1976 Hong Kong film, The Private Eyes. This is a Golden Harvest production, but really the brainchild of its writer, director, and star, Michael Hui who, along with his brothers, Sam and Ricky, uh, and Stanley, who's not in this movie, uh, were a very successful sort of like television comedy crew, these brothers, and they hosted a show that was uh, similar to Laugh-In in the early 70s. And collectively, they were pioneers of the, you know, Cantonese dialect comedy and the sort of new wave of Cantonese language films uh, that happened in the 1970s in Hong Kong. And so he's really one of these huge figures uh, of the era. And in fact, The Private Eyes was the highest grossing Hong Kong film of its year. Uh, to give you an idea of how these films, you know, sort of sit in that cultural context. Uh, ultimately, this film is uh, about the goings-on of the Mannix Detective Agency, as led by Wong, played by Michael Hui, who is a, oh, how to put, uh, a <laughs> narcissistic miserly, cheap, miserable son of a bitch who runs this detective agency. <laughs> and uh, his hubris is often getting him into, you guessed it, comical situations. This is a, an outright uh, slapstick farce comedy, whatever you want to call it. This is a film that has a joke a minute, a joke a second, rather, sorry. Uh, and the film also concerns uh, Lee, 
played by Sam Hui, who is a factory worker at some kind of like kitchen or bottle factory, soda factory. I don't know. The really. Vita Soy factory. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he is he is fired uh, from his job early in the film, and he uh, takes a job at this detective agency uh, along with, of course, uh, Wong's assistant Puffy, uh, who is just this poor man with a neck brace who is constantly verbally and physically abused by his boss. Um, So that's sort of the setup. Uh, The film is generously uh, plotless. It's really just like a rapid fire series of like private eye cases and just the nonstop sort of like tidal wave of work that these people find themselves uh, up in here. Uh, And it's all an excuse uh, to make the audience laugh, right? And uh, the film has also in in the shadows uh, quite the pedigree because there is uh, production design and assistant direction here by John Woo, action direction by Sammo Hung, and stunt work by an unknown Jackie Chan. So uh, really a lot of talent on this set, to say nothing of the Hui brothers, and specifically Sam, whose band Lotus provided the soundtrack for the film. And Lotus was a, a big sort of you know, band of this era, again, pioneering Cantonese pop uh, in the 1970s. And goddamn, the song, and I should say the song in this movie more than there really are songs, the song in this film uh, is quite amazing. And I've already had it on repeat uh, at Marshland's uh, studio. Yeah, I've been, I've been humming the melody all day. <laughs> so yeah, that's, uh, that's The Private Eyes from 1976. Thank you, Marsh. Ryan, what do you got for us today? So funny enough, um, I was reminded of the film I chose because of Marsh. I had sent over the private eyes to him, and he had reminded me of the existence of this film, and it got me all excited thinking about, oh, I've been so long meaning to check out this, this film, and I thought it would be such a fun fit, and I'm glad how it worked out because the film I selected, they all laughed by the director Peter Bogdanovich from 1981 also centers around three private eyes working at a detective agency. So that was kind of a fun little overlap with the two films that that we have here. So to give you an idea of what this film is about, it follows three private investigators from the Odyssey Detective Agency in New York. We have John Russo, played by Ben Gazzara, who's tasked with following Angela, played by Audrey Hepburn, around New York, hired by her husband. While at the same time, Charles and Arthur, played by John Ritter and Blaine Novak, respectively, um, are tasked with following Dorothy Stratton around, who plays a character named Dolores. And in these sequences of private investigators following these two women around New York, running all over the city, all over the streets of New York, they start to fall in love with them. And this film ends up developing this insane matrix of love, overlapping affection, people leaving each other for different characters in the film. It's, it, there's, there are so many characters in this film, and all of them seem to fall in love with each other uh, at some point or another by the end of it. So the thing, though, that's really remarkable about this film is that 
so much of its beauty and so much of its pain is based off of its real world counterparts. So for example, a lot of the love that we see on screen is based off of real romance that was happening behind the scenes. We have John Ritter who is playing a Peter Bogdanovich surrogate of sorts as he's falling in love with Dorothy Stratton who Bogdanovich was having a relationship with at the time. There's also Ben Gazzara's character who is falling in love with Audrey Hepburn here in her last leading role, which was also another off-screen romance that was sort of dissolving by the time that this film was being put together. But then that beauty is sort of counteracted by the fact that this film is haunted by the specter of the murder of Dorothy Stratton, which had happened just after the film was produced, but before it was released. Dorothy Stratton was murdered by her ex-husband, who had also hired a private investigator to follow her around during the production of this film. So there is this specter that haunts this film of private eyes. Uh, when I popped this film on, um, I wasn't feeling so good. I had like, I think I've eaten something really nasty and it kind of gave me a bad stomach ache. But then this film kind of became this beautiful medicine that calmed me down and it reminded me of why I love movies so much. This is the film that carries with it all of this love and joy and Bogdanovich himself has addressed this, looking back at this film, that this was the happiest period of his life. The film, unlike The Private Eyes that Marsh brought up, you know, having been such a successful hit in Hong Kong, They All Laughed was not very successful in the United States. It had an extremely limited run before being pulled from theaters because producers were really anxious about the fact that it was associated with the murder of its, one of its leading actresses. In an act of desperation, Bogdanovich tried to self-fund the distribution of this film across the United States on his own, spending five million of his own dollars to get this thing out in front of audiences. And though it did play rather well with, you know, the amount of money he spent and it received critical appraisals, you know, he, he couldn't compete with studios. You can't self-distribute your own movie in, in major markets. And because of this, he ended up going bankrupt and it really soiled uh, the following few years of his life. And it's a tragedy because it is a beautiful film. I, I was full of joy watching it. it. It's a film that makes you kind of want to be a private investigator. It is clearly made by a man who just desperately loves films from the 40s and 50s. And the film is really just a bunch of great sequences of these private investigators running around the streets of New York. It features remarkable location photography, lots of glances amongst everybody, and it just creates this chaos that is perfectly controlled by Bogdanovich. Um, so yeah, that is They All Laughed from 1981. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, it's... it's uh... It's kind of funny, as you both sort of mentioned in your intro, uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't point out to our, our listeners that, you know, when the titles were, were given to me uh, and I, I saw the names of the films and, and saw what they were about, I, I sort of pinned both of these movies on the wrong man, so to speak. <laughs> I was like... Oh, of course, Marsh would bring me this this Peter Bogdanovich movie, and and Ryan, you know, true to his form, brought me this obscure foreign film um, that I had never seen before and never heard of before. Uh, but boy, just to show you um, what a what a poor detective I am, <laughs> I got it so wrong. You know, um, it's it's funny because you know the whole time I was sitting there being like, you know, the, these were just such perfect films for who I thought you both 
were, you know, and are, I should say, you know, and uh, <laughs> like, like I would say the detectives in, in, in both of these films, um, I'm no Columbo, uh, shall we say. And, um, yeah, you know, something that, that reflecting a little bit more on private detectives versus, you know, I guess you could say public detectives, those who work for police forces, it struck me, you know, we, we talked about this in the past, you know, the, the sort of the backward glance of, of so many detective films. And I think when you're dealing with like cops, uh, you know, detectives on the force, there is a, a, a more of a backward glance in so many of those films because usually cops are dealing with homicides. And I was thinking about private investigators and, and all the great private eye stories and books and films that I've consumed over the years. And I realized that actually a lot of private investigators are, are, are not exactly dealing with the, the past, so to speak, because usually they're not dealing with, at least when they're hired, murder, solving murders, because that is the territory of the homicide squad. Mm -hmm. But a lot of private investigators their concern is usually with the living. They're hired to, you know, uh, determine whether or not a spouse is cheating or, you know, help with a kidnapping case, you know, things that the, the police department might not necessarily be uh, able to or equipped to handle or interested in, in, in exploring um, in their department. So it would seem to me then that a lot of private investigators uh, in film are, are much more present-oriented in the sense that they're, they're tracking down someone who is alive at that moment. And that a lot of private investigator films really focus on and focus heavily on the idea of following people. And both of these films feature that extensively in their films. These are movies in which characters are just running around, tracking one another down, shadowing each other. Uh, and so in that regard, I think that they are both um, excellent films in this regard, right? Uh, the, the, the Private Eye film is one in which people are looking at people constantly. And these films both deal with it in their own ways. I think as you described it, uh, Ryan, in, in the case of They All Laughed, uh, you know, it's it's maybe a little bit more about infatuation or an infatuation that develops. Uh, and in the case of The Private Eyes, you know, it's really just to unleash a lot of hijinks on us. Although we do also get treated to, in those vignettes, Marsh, a little bit of infidelity as well. Um, so yeah, you know, it was just something that I was thinking about, you know, that that private eyes are a little bit more present oriented maybe uh compared to uh the homicide detectives of the police force you know who are tasked with piecing something together that already happened when mm -hmm. private eyes are trying to catch something in the act if you will right and i almost feel like with homicide films about homicide detectives it usually ends with a climax that feels like a chase while in private eye films the entire film can often feel like a chase especially private eye comedies which both of these are the actual 
following around of all of these subjects and the near misses of them hiding when they think they're about to be caught by the people that they're following around leads to so many different varieties of physical and visual gags um, in both films, whether that's in They All Laughed and we have the hippie detective who's rolling around on his roller skates on the sunny streets of New York, or we have people hiding in big spa jacuzzis and hotels in the private eyes. Um, Lots of funny near catches in both films. Wasn't it Godard who said, uh, you know, we liked detectives because they could go wherever? Mm-hmm. Um, if he didn't say it, someone someone did, right? And and I think both films are a testament to, like, I mean, really just, like, so much of why I love private investigator films. Like, number one, there's the obvious connection to, like, cinephilia voyeurism watching mm-hmm. that you already brought up Andy it's like one of the great subjects of cinema is people watching people you know and like that extra jolt that that gives us as people watching people watching people mm-hmm. um and that's why it can be so so fascinating and number two is the on location shooting of both films I think both films are infused with that sort of like you know, and being later on this spectrum, but that 60s, 70s era of run and gun on the streets, right? Both films are bustling city centers and they are, yes, involved in, right, all these cab rides and Volkswagens falling apart and, uh, you know, just all this busyness. Pounding right? the pavement. Yeah, so much pounding the pavement. And, and that's even alluded to in The Private Eyes as it opens with this canto pop song about, like, working people and the struggles of uh, the city and being poor and all that stuff, right? And I think, yeah, both films capture the cities, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in that kind of like new wave spirit. And so again, the idea of the detective being able to like go all these cool places, it's like most fucking people, they go to work and it's just like one one place mm-hmm. and they look at the same fucking wall all day and then they, they get home, they go to the cinema and then they go, damn, the private eye just, like, goes wherever. And that's maybe not strictly true. You know, they they go where the case takes them. But, like, really, they they get to see a lot and they get to interact with a lot of different people. And I think two more things that, for me, differentiate the idea of private investigators from police detectives, shall we say. Uh, One is related to that idea, something that has always, um, I've felt a, a sort of a cool feature that adds drama and tension to private investigators in the sense of, you know, going places. Uh, Private investigators are different from cops in the sense that, you know, a cop can flash a badge and just get usually wherever they need to go, right? I'm I'm a cop. I'm a homicide detective. Let me in. But private investigators often have to rely on their wits to get them to certain places that they cannot otherwise go. You know, they, they have less access, I should say perhaps less official access than a cop does. And so private investigators, there's often also this, this sort of 
blurred line between cop and criminal that private investigators often find themselves uh, existing on, where they often have to sort of break into places. You know, there's almost like a a burglar esque quality to their movements, their stalking, their their pursuits that sometimes even put them at odds with. Uh, the the police and I, I I know in the private eyes we certainly see that but oh yeah but the uh, the other element that you mentioned in this idea of of you know the the hustle and the bustle and and specifically you know in that opening theme of private eyes you know there's this sort of um, you know, for those who, who haven't seen this film uh, and, and don't speak Cantonese, we should probably, you know, cue them in a little bit on the lyrics. But the, the lyrics are specifically talking about that, about like working and toiling and being part of, of the system. And again, a, a thing that often differentiates to me private investigators from uh, police detectives is the element of capital that also usually kind of uh, hangs over everything like a cloud, right? Because these aren't just, you know, servants of the public good, you know? They're not just a cop because they want to help people. Private investigators are in all of this to make a buck. And it's always been this sort of, I guess, kind of element, this this almost cliche of a lot of private uh, private eye stories and films is how upfront uh, the, the PIs usually are about fees and money and making money on solving these cases, you know? The specter of capital looms so much uh, larger to me in private investigator films than it does in stories about, you know, cops, homicide cops, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I guess that that is something that distincts They All Laughed then from the typical private investigator film, because I suppose you could argue that this film presents a group of private dicks who are sort of in it for the love of maybe not necessarily the love of the game, but definitely the love <laughs> of the woman that they're following around. And I think that part of the way you can read that, too, then is something you brought up, Marsh, how the idea of people looking at people can be read as like a metaphor for cinephilia even. And with Bogdanovich being like the OG cinephile, right? This film, you can't help but read it in certain respects as that, the act of a cinephile following around, especially in terms of Ben Gazzara following around Audrey Hepburn, the idea of following around these Hollywood stars and even following around these Hollywood forms. I mean, there are sequences in this film, particularly with the character of Christy, who is a country music singer played by Colleen Camp, who at times sounds like she's doing a Katherine Hepburn impression. You know, she's she's wearing her tie. She's really, you know, smart talking, street tough, talks in this like staccato way that Katherine Hepburn does. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. I'm Christy Miller. Oh, hello. You're the singer. Right, so, honey, the record's climbing the charts as we speak. I'm Dolores Martin. Pleased to meet you. Oh, nice to meet you. Mrs. Martin or Miss Martin? Mrs. Oh, Mrs. Oh. And who's this tall drink of water? What? Jose, this is Christy Miller, the country singer. Hello. Nice to meet you. Charles, come here! Who, me? Of course, Charles is like the absent-minded professor, you know? What? Who? Charles. This is Charles. Charles, this is Dolores. Hello, Charles. Nice to meet you, Dolores. And this is Jose Charles. Charles. It's in those scenes where you see 
there's Bogdanovich again showing his hand. He's he's emulating these styles that he just adores and loves. And I, I think that there's something there in terms of like the cinephile chasing his fantasy and then maybe what happens when they actually find it, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, in your intro, uh, not to nitpick at all, but, but, you know, in your intro, you were, you were sort of talking about Bogdanovich, um, and, and these, you know, modes of cinema, forms of cinema, airs of cinema that, that he's sort of invoking in this film. And I would actually say, I, I feel in that regard, it's much more like a thirties film. Yes, definitely. Than a forties film or fifties film. It's like a screwball comedy, you know, mm-hmm. the, the rapid fire dialogue that so many of the characters are, are spitting out. And, and even as you mentioned, the, the sort of dressing styles, you know, Catherine Hepburn being known for that as sort of having a, a you know, a sort of masculine uh, kind of air to her fashion sense, this, this, this leveling of the sexes that was so prevalent in screwball comedies of the time. And to your point about, you know, the, the love of the game. I mean, that's something that I've always really appreciated about screwball comedies from the thirties is that, you know, it's really about men and women going on adventures together, you know, finding Mm -hmm. love through an adventure. That's really what this film is you know it's just people sort of having adventures in in life and love more than it is about solving any kind of case i mean they all laughed has a bit more of a central kind of conflict or plot than the private eyes does but still to me if i was like you know just just looking at this film you know, as a whole, I would kind of describe it as a sort of marriage between like an Altman hangout and a 30s screwball comedy. You know, even though there is this kind of central concern, it really is just kind of a bunch of people enjoying each other's company or at times perhaps not really enjoying each other's company. But but that's really kind of what the film is, you know? Yeah, there's so little attention drawn to the actual cases and what it is that they're trying to track down. It is instead primarily concerned with keeping up with each other, following everyone around and making sure you don't lose the thread, even though we're not really privy to any of these case files or things that they're actually learning essentially on their quests. I mean, it's just simple stuff that we hear. They even make jokes about it. Their their boss, Leon Leondopoulos, mentions that, well, I haven't received anything from you. I I have nothing to report when anybody is calling and asking about what you've been seeking. And John Ritter has his his little flip book of notes, but he's never turning in any of this information. He's not actually accomplishing anything in a business way of a private investigator. Yeah, it's interesting that (laughs) it's it's Private Dick's Week and both films are not mysteries. Right. So <laughs> yeah. and I, I think that speaks to <laughs> both filmmakers using the genre to disguise their comedies ultimately or their their romantic comedies, you know. Yeah, there's 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 not a lot of tension throughout either film about, you know, will they or won't they solve a certain case? You know, it's it's not really what even the filmmakers, I think, to your point, Marsh, uh, uh, assume that their audiences are, 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 you know, watching the film for in the first place. You know, they weren't designed that way. Uh, it's really just a sort of 
showcase for the talents of the performers in 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 both films, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of like the the Hui brothers, you know, their their physical comedy, and and in the case of they all laughed uh, for a bunch of actors that that Bogdanovich, for one reason or another, uh, is enamored with. Uh, and and I'll say too, you know, in the case of that that you kind of alluded to in your intro for better or worse, you know, Bogdanovich is, uh, no stranger to being, um, uh, quite taken with his leading ladies at one point or another in his, <laughs> in his career. And, and so when you even think about, you know, the sort of metatextual level that you kind of alluded to in your, in your opening, I mean, this whole discussion of like people following people, people chasing people, uh, you know, it's really kind of just like Bogdanovich being the the PI, you know, and, and sort of, you know, yes, we're watching these people watch these people and we're also watching Bogdanovich watch everyone, you know. Right. With the added effect of uh, the film having been shot by Robbie Mueller and camera operated by future legend Ed Lockman, like literally two of the greatest cinematographers ever working on this film. And it it's kind of a yeah, it's a very like warm, glowy kind of kind of film, but it also has the street grit and the long walk and talks and the bustling dollies, you know, it's really got got all that shit going on. It's it's really stunning. Yeah, it's a bit of a cliche to say, but obviously a huge chunk of this film is just a love letter to New York. They, as much as Bogdanovich <laughs> is enamored with all of the actors in his film, he's certainly enamored with the city. And I would say 90% of this movie takes place on the streets. I mean, I don't think there's a single set used in the entire film. We've got people running on the streets in real offices, in real high-rise apartment buildings. Part of that then, him using this genre in service of exploring these things that he loves, does relate to what you were just saying, Andy, about how these films aren't will they or won't they solve the case it's will they or won't they be able to keep up with what they're seeking and also be able to make sure that they never get caught in the process and and that's really something that's something that both films share but then they're in service of two different things possibly wherein they all laughed romance and comedy while in the private eyes it's in service of slapstick comedy right physical gags I think one thing that then connects them that, Andy, you were sort of bringing up earlier about like capital and the private eye, right? Because it's like, you know, so often the clients are these wealthy people or businesses or institutions, right? Who can afford to hire a private eye? Not a normal person, you know, or whatever. Um, And so I think them both being comedies i think it's like very pointed that some of their clients if not all of their clients are kind of shitty Mm -hmm. you know and that's like part of the comic element right because it's like on the one hand and they all laughed you go like wow these guys are private investigators but really they're just like stalking these women (laughs) you know (laughs) absolutely but the fact that you know uh, in the in the film's world, it's like one guy is just some shitty husband who she's like trying to leave Dorothy Stratton's character. And then Audrey Hepburn's character has this like billionaire husband who's just cheating on her as she raises their child, you know, so like they're not sympathetic 
And in the private eyes, I mean, it's like the shopkeeper woman, you know, who wants to stop shoplifters. I'm like, come on, lady, (laughs) give me a break. Although, again, it leads to a very comic set piece. Um, But yeah, like all the people that are hiring them are kind of like shifty or shady in their in their own way. Well, and usually private eyes are shifty, shady characters in that in that vein. I mean, look, I'll be honest. You know, if I'm just evaluating the the two detective agencies oh featured in these films, uh, I got a lot of issues with both. Yeah. You know, like I would not give them a good write up on Yelp. Yeah, I wouldn't hire them. No, no way. I mean, these are, you know, two very shitty detective agencies. Terrible. In the case of They All Laughed, you know, they're they're supposed to be out there determining infidelity. And really, as Marge pointed out, they're just stalking these women. Yeah. You know, they're, they're just and they're causing more infidelity. Yeah, they're all just trying to get laid, uh, is is what's happening. And and in private eyes, I mean, as you mentioned, that poor shopkeeper, I mean, they wreck up the joint. Yeah. You know, like I, I can't imagine how these people keep getting hired to do what the hell they do because well, Wong says he's been in the red for nine years. Mm-hmm. So not a good, not a good model. Not surprising after watching the, the kind of like carnage that they. Yeah, the amount of property damage, the the bills they'd be racking up with that agency just must be insurmountable, just unbelievable. I mean, I think it's it's funny that both the heads of the agencies are like these neurotics, you know, because Leon and they all laughed is just like carrying on an affair with the secretary that everyone knows about, but he, head of the detective agency, doesn't think anyone knows about, right? right? <laughs> and he's just always complaining about their work and his back. Hello, Mr. Leandopoulos, how are you? Where the hell are the reports of the Martin case? Yes, well, it's been a little hectic lately, Leon. We got them, Leon, they just ain't typed yet. Then we don't got them, Arthur. The typing is in some middle-class bureaucratic curlicue, and I would really prefer not to hear exasperation in anyone's tone this morning. Because I'm on the narrow edge of a precipice, and even the smallest additional irritation could cause me to slip over into a gaping abyss, out of which I gravely doubt it would be possible for me to climb. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, Holy Mother. Ah, shit, that burns. Charlie? No. Get the ice. Got it. Butter. Ice, ice, butter just fries. Once a week, it's the same story, Leon. Thank you just kind of like this miserable bearded man. Uh, And Wong, you know, at Mannix is like, he's got his own picture on the wall. He tells everyone, uh, here's a photo of me with the former governor. And always is just kind of like puffing himself up, even though, yeah, he can't keep his shit together at all, you know? Uh, So both institutions as detective agencies are, yeah, they're total, total failures, but they are comedies, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't hire either of them to get anything done for me, but I will say both of these detective agencies really did make me want to be a private investigator because it looks like they are having so much fun. I mean, it didn't make me want to go around and and stalk women on the streets of New York, but it did, like you were talking about, Marsh, most people just are looking at the same wall every day. Or computer screen, yeah. You're basically saying you just want to get paid to just stroll around the streets of a city looking at people is what you're saying yeah i would love to do that and i i you know ever the flaneur ryan saunders (laughs) 
And I also kind of feel like, too, these movies are nice time capsules for, I mean, any private investigator film made before the 2000s in terms of evoking what these jobs were, you know, what they were like as compared to now. I mean, I'd have to imagine that private investigators now are just like surveying text messages. You know, they're just hackers. Mm -hmm. They're monitoring what kind of digital communications are going on. I mean, I'm sure there's still a bit of, you know, the in-person element following and seeing where they end up, but it's probably a less exciting job now than it used to be. Yes, yes. But, you know, to to that point, I would say that they all laughed. uh, Seems to me more like what, you know, your average private, you know, investigating company actually does deal with which is just sussing out infidelity just sussing out cheating spouses i mean that's really all they seem to do and and it it really like as i was watching the film like i was really kind of just overtaking with just how much of this film is really just an exploration of that of just like cheating on people in in romance in love everybody in this film is two-timing somebody. <laughs> Everybody yes. is is fooling around, and and the the layers of that was was uh, it was a little dizzying at times to sort of keep up with all the love triangles and quadrangles that that emerge throughout this film. That again, when you get to that meta textual level that we've like discussed and, and the, the, the actors and all the, the things that they had gone through. I mean, I, I really was, you know, just thinking that this thing is, is, is kind of like Bogdanovich trying to sort of psychoanalyze uh, the 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 bad romances he'd gone through in in his life, you know, that's really what uh, was was just really like smacking me in the face while I was watching this movie. Yeah, and the bad romances of these actors that he was infatuated with, because there's a great deal of reality to the Audrey Hepburn character, who herself was in somewhat of a loveless marriage with her husband cheating on her, but she had stayed with him to raise their son. So that element from her life is directly lifted and placed into this film. And her and Ben Gazzara were falling in love on another production. And and you can you can just feel that throughout so many of these encounters. And that's what makes like so much of the that web both dizzying but also something that like feels palatable because everyone's responding to their real lives. I thought it was interesting that uh, early in they all laughed when we're introduced to uh, Arthur and Charles uh, outside of the theater. There's all these patrons leaving and did you guys catch the song that's playing? Eat misbehaving, <laughs> as we previously saw in Stormy Weather. I think that sort of sets the tone. Uh, this kind of like, yeah, all these people misbehaving, you know. Uh, and and <laughs> sure. right, I think you know you look you look at it in a variety of ways. And and I sort of saw it as Bogdanovich, you know, for for better or worse, you know, going back to the classics. It reminded me of. Uh, a silent Lubitsch film, The Marriage Circle, where it's like, oh yeah, no, like everyone just needs to swap partners and then we'll be happy, you know? And like, that's sort of like what this film ultimately kind of ends up being in that case is like, 
everyone is with the wrong person and then they're trying to figure out who the right person is but even then like it's not right and then it's got to get all rearranged like a game of uh, romantic musical chairs mm-hmm. or country western musical chairs uh, mm-hmm. at the end you know so I mean I did yeah I, I find that that sort of like doubling uh, compelling in something you often see, you know, in a film like Alan Rudolph's Love at Large, you know, <laughs> this this kind of like doppelganger like thing that happens in private eye movies, right? Uh, and you see it here, you know, and, and so this isn't Lubitsch, it's more of a, yeah, a shambling new Hollywood production, but that's cool, you know. He's got John Ritter dressed as Cary Grant, you know, explicitly referred to as like the absent-minded professor, you Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is funny. He's got him dressed as Cary Grant while also kind of dressed as himself, dressed as Peter Bogdanovich. (laughs) You know, he's he's purposefully having John Ritter play the Peter surrogate in the film. Hey, how you doing, Chazzy boy? Whoa, 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 brother. Oh, God, thanks. What the hell are you doing here? I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. You smoked that whole joint? I was just standing there. The whole joint. Looking at her. Next thing I know, I'm out here on these skates like an idiot. Look, we're going to get ourselves in big trouble here. You know that. I think we should take it just a little bit light. I know, but let me kiss her on the mouth. Oh, the husband's going to like that one. Oh, no, no, Arthur, I got that figured out. What? What? You got that figured out? Oh, yeah, yeah. If the boyfriend... Which is also another funny, weird meta texture because Bogdanovich felt he was too old to play the part, even though he was having a real life affair with the actress that he assumed he would be too old to play the romantic partner with in the film that he was making of their love. You know, it's kind of like a bit of a Peter Bogdanovich, a hypocrite. (laughs) No. But yeah, you know, the, it's funny, the shambling sort of style was something that I did eventually just completely surrender myself to. And it's one of the reasons I wished amongst many that I had seen it in a theater, because I think it was exactly at the halfway mark when Audrey Hepburn utters her first line of dialogue. It's like 58 minutes into this movie before Audrey Hepburn actually speaks. And when she finally does, I paused the movie and was trying to reflect on, wait a minute, what is the case here beyond just infidelity? Like, is there something I'm missing? And I was looking at, you know, the plot synopsis on Wikipedia and I was like, I don't need to be reading any of this because I was sort of going over the nitty gritty and I was like, I just need to surrender myself and let Robbie Mueller take me through the streets of New York because I felt comfortable. I should just be relying on that. And once I gave myself up to that shambling nature and realized everyone was just falling in love with each other, it was a much more relaxing ride. Yeah. It's funny, too, that you point that out about Audrey Hepburn because she is top build in this film. And she's barely in the movie at all. Uh, She has very little screen time compared to certainly some of the other folks in there, but clearly trying to bank on her, her aura as a, as a, as a grand star in this, because I felt like, you know, she's one of the characters who gets kind of the least amount of, of attention at times, other than just being this sort of, you know, this, this presence that Ben Gazzara becomes uh, enamored with, you know? Mm-hmm. I think both of these films have a couple like really great set pieces, 
and I want to and I want to highlight two two things specifically. In they all laughed. There's a you know a, a section where Charles, uh, John Ritter, and uh, Arthur go to the roller rink uh, to spy on Dolores, and it is like uh, it looks so fun. Yeah, it looks number one. It looks amazing. You know, of course, the Mueller neon haze of it all, and then. Ritter is putting on like a silent era roller skate slapstick performance that goes on for like 10 plus minutes basically as he's following Dolores and then engaging with her and then trying to get his skates off and then going to the next thing mm-hmm. uh and it's it's amazing yeah. like what he is doing with his body in this sequence I mean John Ritter is you know rest in peace John Ritter, but but he has always been one of, uh, in my book, one of the great pratfall specialists in <laughs> Hollywood. I mean, and it's it's on full display here. Every scene that he's in, he's he's tripping on something, slipping on something, you know, sitting down on air, you know, missing a chair. I mean, he is he is like perfect for the Mannix detective agency oh, yeah. in, my, in my view really I mean he would have been right there with uh, the Wee brothers uh, you know slipping and sliding all over the streets of Hong Kong <laughs> yeah Charles Charles and Wong both fall into puddles or like little fountains you know at, at various points there is a lot uh, in common with that Ritter performance and then on the on the sort of flip side of things, there is the element, you know, in the private eyes that we haven't really talked about uh, of kung fu, right? Yeah. And so again, very much speaking to the era in which this film was made, right? The the heyday of Bruce Lee, uh, and so Lee uh, Sam Hui's character, the the factory worker turned. Uh, Sleuth. Uh, he actually, in a, in of course, a moment I'm sure we all loved. Uh, he puts on a trench coat and lights up a cigar and does a, like a Columbo impression when he's trying to get the job at the Mannix mm-hmm. agency. But he, uh, yeah, he he could kick a little ass, you know. And so there's this thread throughout where he's basically like hired because of his kung fu because Wong's like oh you can do that that's pretty good and then you know spends the whole rest of the movie being like jealous of him and his (laughs) kung fu skills Um, but they get into uh, they get into a very uh, comical action set piece early on when uh, Wong thinks that (laughs) some some ruffian in the elevator has stolen (laughs) his wallet uh, and so they, they, this is again, you know, bad private investigating, but he basically, yeah, he accuses this random guy of stealing his wallet. And then it sets off this chase throughout the building that they're in, which then ends up in a kitchen. Uh, and that I think is where we get like the, the full like Sammo Hong comedic action set piece. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, grabbing a fucking sawfish and swiping it around, feeling like you're about to be sliced in half by a big big fish in a kitchen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the as you mentioned in your intro, I mean, like, the, the action pedigree that surrounds this film uh, is, is one of the greatest 
in international cinema. And it's at times very much, uh, very much like on display, you know, for, for all of just the, the general sort of slapstick comedy, as you mentioned, there are some really good action moments that sort of pepper the films, the ones that you've talked about. There's the, the really great, uh, car chase scene with the Volkswagen Beetle that just comes apart piece by piece uh, <laughs> during this very manic, manic chase. But there's also, you know, um, if you had to sort of mark a villain in the film, there's this guy that's sort of a a very, I guess, low rent kind of crime boss that's part of a a rough crew that that seemed to just be up to no good around the streets of Hong Kong, and uh, the leader of this gang is the 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 big bad boss from Enter the Dragon. Yes. I forget what his name yeah. is in Enter the Dragon, but he's just there to sort of like add this kind of martial arts, uh, uh, you know, antagonist kind of figure to. The proceedings, but but as we mentioned, I mean, he's not really like a central character at all. He's just sort of like looming in there until the film kind of congeals around this this really uh, hilarious kind of would be heist that ends up taking place at a movie theater. And I I thought that was my favorite sequence in the entire film was when this guy and his cronies uh, decide that they're going to go to a movie theater. And whether or not they were in cahoots with a mad bomber, like I couldn't really figure that out or if that was just sort of coincidental, but it doesn't really matter because all those elements are there just for our, for <laughs> our fun. But they, these guys end up deciding that their, their, their big ultimate heist is going to be to go to a movie theater and just do a stick em up. And they just climb on stage and pull out a couple yeah. revolvers. And a great hold. train robbery, dude. They just get them all out. They're just like, give it up. <laughs> yeah. We'd, it looked like a crowd of like 300 people. And yeah. uh, it only took three revolvers to get everybody to to empty their pockets into a bunch of bags. And I got to say, it's a little ingenious the way, you know, because when they pulled their guns on this, this group, I was like, how the hell are they going to get everybody's wallet? But they strung up these custom nets yeah this this great apparatus which stretched across the whole theater and they go row by row instructing everyone to as the 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 wire you know reaches you to just empty all your pockets out into the into the nets as you mentioned but but yeah i thought that sequence was great i loved that sequence yeah that was an amazing sequence and of course it's so funny how the entire audience just thinks it's a part of the show they're such good spirits that they see these guys pointing guns at them on stage and they're just applauding because they were clearly loving the film that had preceded this so much they so they were in such like such a good vibe i mean you know you mentioned like how much of of Bogdanovich's like um you know cinematic sensibilities were showcased throughout they all laughed and there's actually a lot of like you know uh references to movies in the private eyes you know we mentioned Columbo but there are you know uh, uh jaws references as well in that that fight scene you talked about in the kitchen where you know one of the guys grabs a what looks like a, a big shark a set of shark's teeth and starts trying mm -hmm. to fight the guy with that and they play this sort of mock-up of the Jaws theme when that happens and then when some of the kung fu gets busted out uh, you get this kind of enter the dragon-esque 
Esque, uh, like jazzy score that starts to play, and they're even like parodying like wuxia films in that. You know, when in the convenience store, when these two guys start to go at it, this woman starts to yell out, you know, use your five animal styles, you know, and and he starts like referencing all this stuff from like, you know, the, the five deadly venoms and that sort of thing. You know, there's a lot of sending up. Crane style. Yeah, crane style, leopard style. There's a lot of sending up of other like popular films from the time that that made the private eyes to me like a, a real treat you know to sort of pick mm-hmm. those apart well i think another thing it's kind of parodying a little bit is uh maybe a little james bond you know Uh-oh. with the, the, te- the technology <laughs> and i'm not one to do a bond alert but i i was caught up in in how much Little devices played a role in the private eyes, right? There's a lot of gags of their, like, lavalier radio system, which is, like, never working. Yeah, perpetually failing. Yeah, and then, uh, <laughs> of course, my favorite, the camera that uh, shoots sideways, right? And there's some good scenes of Wong showing Lee the ropes. Like, here's, here's how you be a private detective. Check out my camera. Uh, it looks like you're shooting one way, but you're shooting another way. And in in this moment, uh, they see a, a sexy babe at the pool that they're at uh, out of the side of this lens. And he passes it over to Wong, who follows the woman into the pool backwards off his chair in a pool pratfall. We love to see that kind of stuff. you know. We do love to see it. That gadget, though, not entirely practical because it's just not even a little bit discreet. Because the lens itself has a huge chunk cut out of it where you can see the mirror that reflects everything to the side. So if you're in the actual line of sight of this lens, you know, to the right of the person who's aiming the camera, if you looked over, you would see potentially even your reflection in the side of this cutout lens. Nine years in the red. Yeah, there's a reason why they're uh, not a very successful group. You know, <laughs> yeah. the uh, the calculator is prominently featured as one of the sort of ticks of of Wong as the head of this agency. He is. He's always actively docking everyone's pay for the damage that they cause on site, uh, which is a very good gag, obviously. Yeah, mm. I mean, I think my favorite scene in the whole film, it's funny because when you had said like that these films both shared great set pieces, there were f- five different set pieces that came to mind uh, for me for The Private Eyes. And I don't know if I would necessarily go as far to call this a set piece, but definitely my favorite scene of the movie is when it's at sort of just their room inside of the detective agency and it's early in the morning and Wong is preparing a chicken that they're all going to eat and he's following along a live broadcast of a cooking show and he's trying to collect all of the ingredients for this recipe as the woman on TV is reciting them, which I thought was, again, another nice little relic as opposed to watching a YouTube tutorial and just pausing to get your stuff ready. But the other two members of the, you know, his detective team are sleeping on these extremely tiny little bunk beds because the top bunk is covered in all of Wong's luggage. So they wake up really sore and they want to make sure they can get some of their morning exercises in. So they change the channel to live instructional exercises but Wong doesn't realize this as he's in the other room preparing the chicken 
And he still thinks he's listening to the same woman who's giving him instructions to prepare this chicken. And he starts then <laughs> responding to everything that's being described, including, you know, moving your neck around and around in a circle 10 times. And he, he's holding this raw chicken and spinning its head around, stretching its legs, getting up and down on the ground, doing stretches with a raw chicken. That's the shit I like. It's so funny. They're they're fucking worthless private detectives. I gotta say, <laughs> these guys are useless. Oh yeah, useless. And uh, I, we should bring up uh, one fun connection to uh, an episode we did not so long ago, Fifty Two Pickup, uh, where we discussed Fat Choi Spirit, the film about mahjong. There are, of course, uh, many references to mahjong in this film, including being used as uh, a code word for sex uh, when there's, you know, a comic scene where they're like spying on, you know, this infidelity uh, and through the door, he's like, you know, they're, they're playing Mahjong, you know? Um, and I discovered that Wakafe uh, basically remade this film in 2004 called Fantasia. And it's the private eyes, but also with magic, from what I can understand. <laughs> and it's got, you know, <laughs> Sean Lau from Fat Choy Spirit playing Michael Hui, basically, ah. uh, and Louis Koo as Sam Hui. So uh, really need to get my hands on, on that and see the updated version. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like cast a deadly spell to me. You know, <laughs> private eyes and magic, if you say that. Yeah. So for those who haven't seen, that's another recommendation right there of a, of a good private eye film, a, a nice HBO original movie featuring the late, great Fred Ward as the central private dick in that. But but yeah, it's it's kind of cool that they, they reference Kung Fu as or compare Kung Fu to magic in this film. And it certainly seems that way to uh, some of the characters in this film, that there's this sort of almost magical element to it because it's related to, for these detectives, a sleight of hand. You know, if you can move very quickly, if you can move very dexterously, uh, then, then you have value. There's a lot of that that sort of features in this as well, you know? And like the fact that Wong is seeing uh, this Kung Fu as a sort of like parlor trick and determines that if he's going to like be of any use with these young guys, he's got to get better at it. So he is like practicing these tricks or these moves like throughout the film, specifically the idea of being able to snatch chocolate out of someone's mouth before they actually are able to consume it. And that is uh, a thing that gets like, you know, played out a lot in this film as he tries to get better and better at that. I think there's a lot of funny connections too between the way these three detectives in both films kind of move around. Uh, oddly enough, there's there's Puffy, who's the, like the real laid back, sleepy, the, yeah, the sleepy <laughs> brother in in the mix at this detective agency. They only get two dollars for lunch. That's not enough energy. That's not enough <laughs> calories. No, he's not getting the protein he needs. There's there's no doubt about that. But he reminded me of Arthur, who's like the hippie, you know, private investigator with the really long curly hair, who's just casually moving around on the roller skates. And then I guess the the funny contrast being with John Ritter who feels at times 
times like a silent movie comedian falling around on his roller skates and being really on edge is kind of contrasted with the grace of Lee, whose his martial arts are just, you know, remarkable compared to the way that everyone else moves around in the private detectives. I'm glad you like brought up Arthur and we haven't really like focused on Arthur at all, but you know, when that guy showed up in the film, he looked so familiar to me. I was I was convinced like I'd seen this guy in other things. I was trying to figure out who the heck he was. So then I'm like looking him up as I'm watching the movie. And I, I of course discovered I had never seen him before because he's in like four (laughs) movies or something like that, you know? And, And he has barely any credits to his name, like on screen. However, I did discover this guy, you know, Blaine Novak, the guy that plays him, uh, was was more known or had a bigger reputation, I guess, for just being a sort of like independent distributor. Uh, I don't know if you guys know anything about this dude, but but I started to really try to like find out more about him. And apparently like his his biggest claim to fame, I guess if you can even call it that, was that he was a sort of like protege of Cassavetes or had like worked with Cassavetes in helping to uh, distribute like early American independent films. And so really like his job, I guess, or his career was in sort of helping independent filmmakers during the new Hollywood era get linked up with distribution. Like, and so I guess, you know, Bogdanovich just sort of knew him from, from this, you know, from, from just like sort of working in new Hollywood, but he was not like a, a, a big actor. Uh, uh, he, he did co-write the film and I guess he'd co-written one or two other films, but, but really like his presence in this film, I figured is just because he's just some sort of like cool dude that hung around in the new Hollywood era. Right. And that's very much like what his presence is in the film. He's just sort of a cool guy that kind of helps facilitate these various romances. You know, if anything, he's like, yeah, he's, he's doing exactly what he did in real life. You know, he's linking up, uh, these people with the uh, distribution of some kind. He's trying know? to hook Gazara up with another actress, you know, <laughs> yeah, just yeah, like just, in real life. He's just helping make deals, you know, but I was like so convinced cause he had such a familiar look to me, but I'd never seen him in anything else before. And I was, again, like really impressed with just how effortless his performance is for a guy that wasn't a seasoned actor compared to a Ben Gazzara. And that's probably the Cassavetes connection right there. You know, if you're getting Ben Gazzara, Ben Gazzara, you got to get this Blaine Novak in here. This (laughs) guy's so cool. (laughs) Yeah, Arthur is probably the best detective out of the six main detectives that we've been discussing between these two films. In moments of him nearly being caught, he's extremely smooth, where he he plays it off in the store that Audrey Hepburn's son is his son as he's showing him all of the like new games while Gazera goes to do a sidebar with her. Should What's that, Mitchell? Mike. Oh, hi, Mike. I'm off. That's my father. That's John. Come on, darling. It's oh, late. just a second. So you have to aim carefully at the lower part of the light, and then you have to squeeze slowly. I can't believe it. Michael, you're a prince. Prince Mike. Thanks a lot for the tip. Oh, that's okay. Bye-bye. Nice to meet you. Hey, listen, Mike, one other thing. You ever play computerized checkers? No, I don't think so. Lord, you mind showing me and my son here some of those moves? I got a hunch you know the moves. He's just like a a grade-A wingman in this movie. And again, like, just kind of like, like... 
extrapolating that, you know, this idea of even putting this guy in here, getting all these people together as Bogdanovich did, you know, it isn't, I guess, a surprise to me that Bogdanovich would say that, you know, making this movie was like the happiest moment in his life because, you know, really it, it, it's just that, you know, it's like Bogdanovich, you know, it's, it's, it's like the, as I was like doing research on that, you know, that some people like lump this in with, some of the other, like, you know, films of this, you know, the early 80s is like, oh, this was the end of New Hollywood, you know, when these movies all all flopped big time, like this and uh, what's the Chimino Heaven's one? Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate, yeah. you know, that like yeah. this was the end of it all. And it's like, if I just take a step back and I look at They All Laughed, like, this is like peak new Hollywood excess on a certain level of just kind of being like, what is the reason for this film to exist? For Bogdanovich to like woo this young hot actress and hang out with <laughs> yeah. a bunch of people that he likes and like have a good time, you know, like that's really what like the film is. And like it's kind of then like really dark and shocking then when you think about that, like all these fun and games led to this poor woman getting fucking murdered. You know, it's like Bogdanovich is like, ah, I'm really into this chick. She's super hot and like falls in love with her. And then as you mentioned in your intro, like gets this woman's ex-husband inflamed with jealousy to the point where he hires a private investigator and fucking kills her and kills himself. You know, like I had known that story but I had never seen this film. And then when I look at it, I'm like, of course, this is the way that New Hollywood end, you know, with a hangout film that led to some poor woman getting fucking murdered because the director was sleeping with her, you know? Yeah, it's a movie that I loved so much and is so enjoyable. But at the same time, I couldn't help sit there thinking, did this movie kill this woman? You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, that was in my mind, like, the whole time. I mean, there's this haunted quality to this film that makes it very interesting, you know? Because, yeah, I think some people would be, you know, I, I could certainly see why some people in 1981 would be kind of like, what is this thing? Like, I thought we were done with all this now, you know? Haven't you seen Star Wars? Like, we're moving on to some new <laughs> shit now, you know? But, yeah, you know, it's just like even in the open, the very first title card we see is the dedication to her, you know, that this film is dedicated. What does it say? The, the, the company dedicates this film to Dorothy Stratton. And it's kind mm -hmm. of like, yes, it is this kind of cursed object as well. Like, and, and, and I think like when people know that it, 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 I don't want to say like it takes away from the pleasures of the film, but there is this really kind of bittersweet quality that I had in watching this film and, and asking that exact same question, Ryan, like, Bogdanovich got this poor woman killed, you know? <laughs> like, I couldn't help but, like, sort of feel that. You know? Well, it's also haunted, too, because, you know, the Twin Towers are prominently, <laughs> prominently <laughs> featured. Yeah, I think somebody said that. I forgot who I read where they were like, they're like, her credit in the end, like the, her her like title card at the like in the ending credits or whatever is like over the Twin Towers. Yeah, I I saw that too. I think it's listed in the IMDb trivia, which is like another all timer IMDb trivia, just like anecdote that for some reason is still up on the website. Some fool wrote Dorothy Stratton's name appears over the Twin Towers, and that is like justified as trivia for this film. So funny. Wow, well, it is. <laughs>
I wish I had seen this film before I met Bogdanovich. I probably would have asked him about this instead of what I did talk to him about. I briefly met him in the hallway of the AMC River East. Michael Kutza, the founder of the film festival, like, pulled me aside and said, you like Peter Bogdanovich, right? I'm like, yeah, I mean, I like his movies. Like, come with me. <laughs> and then forced me to like, because normally I don't like approach filmmakers that often, you know, it's not really my thing. Um, but he brought me up and then put me on the spot and said, oh, Ryan loves your films. He's, he's seen so many of them. And at this point, I think I had only seen The Last Picture Show. So <laughs> I hadn't even seen Targets yet. So I was a little uneasy. So the first thing that I could think of was I asked Bogdanovich, I said, what's the meanest thing John Ford has ever said to you? <laughs> Hoping that he would <laughs> reveal something that he hadn't previously just like constantly talked about in all of his interviews and it was such an unremarkable answer that I don't even remember what it was I know that whatever Bogdanovich told me was something that he's repeated endlessly in interviews also I've heard in stories meaner things that John Ford has, has said to Bogdanovich <laughs> I've seen the footage Prince the legend. <laughs> right <laughs> but yeah maybe instead I could have asked him about his work instead <laughs> instead of bringing up bad memories yeah. He loved to get berated by Pappy. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, like it's, it's, you know, for me, I've always felt that Peter Bogdanovich is this sort of like just kind of charlatan esque character, you know? And it's, it's sort of a shame that, that, that this film hasn't been seen more because I think that this shows his best and worst qualities as a director at the same time. In that sense, to me, it's like, for me, it's a great Peter Bogdanovich film, and I, I've never seen it before. But yeah, you know, like it is, it is uh, for me. It, it yeah, it's it's like it's got the things that like can make him a really great director, and it's got the things that also reveal like what an incredible fucking narcissist he is. You know, you called Wong a narcissist in Private Eyes, but to me, the biggest narcissist on display is uh, is Petey here with uh, they all laughed. You know, and like what we get out of that because of that through that narcissism is like this just just like really great platform for really good performers, some well-known and some not so well-known that come together and do like sing in harmony, you know? Every scene, every moment with these characters just seems so effortless and so comfortable, you know? There isn't this sense for me watching this film that there was a lot of like work involved in making this film like it just seems like let's just throw all these little things in here that are that are in my mind and things that I want to play with and let's see if they work let's see if they they gel and like a testament to like the better qualities that he can have as a director is that is that it does it does all come together even in a film that is basically almost as plotless as the private eyes to me right right <laughs> I, I agree to an extent. I do think the narcissism is is present here, but I almost think that the harmony that is created amongst all of the performers in this film really transcends that narcissistic quality. It really does seem like everyone is having such a good time 
performing in this film that to me it just registers as is like pitch perfect it's just such bliss amongst everyone and all of the the goofy hijinks that they're getting up to even as far as the country music that's so heavily featured in the film which feels like an odd little touch i read that bogdanovich said you know country music was in vogue for 30 seconds in new york you know so i decided to feature it in the film because he loves country music so much which is kind of a narcissistic touch you know he's going to bring in his own types of genre of music that's a bit more classical and out of touch with like hip new york in the early 80s but even then all of the country music songs them hanging out at the country music bars they're just they're so pleasant they're That's really when it felt like a like an Altman film because Altman yes. would too do like a total dick move like that and be like country bar in New York who cares you know like <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> but Bogdanovich being like it was cool then you know again yeah. I think it speaks to why Peter Bogdanovich is not Robert Altman right he cares too much and Altman cares too little you know <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. it's true. well Altman ahead of the game Bogdanovich chasing trends you know. <laughs> Yeah, there is, you know, speaking of speaking of Altman, uh, I was going to say earlier that in They All Laughed, there's not a lot of gadgetry, but there's uh, quite quite a good amount of smoking joints on the job with uh, Arthur and Charles. And that's a that's a fun touch, you know, because, again, I, I always think like I have Bogdanovich is kind of a narc, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's it's nice to see. Yeah. The, the good humor in. Uh, yeah. Just some guys smoking jays on the streets of New York and going to a roller rink. Women's yeah. windows, yeah, peeking through women's windows, all yeah. the things that men love to do. Yeah, that was one of those moments where, like, heading back after the roller skating rink and just hanging out outside someone's apartment and saying, "Oh, only one hit for me tonight. It's gonna, it's gonna be a long night." That's when I was most thinking, like, this is this is the job for me. This looks like a blast. <laughs> you know? Sleeping on a public bench because you're just like high and waiting for Dorothy Stratton <laughs> yeah. to wake up. Pining for Dorothy Stratton. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I do want to mention, you know, there, uh, there's like a million jokes in, in the private eyes. Um, but I, even though, you know, you could see it coming from a mile away, I was still laughing my ass off when Wong burst the waterbed, you know, <laughs> a very like seventies moment, you know, these guys are like, what's a waterbed. Um, and there's even when they go into that like fancy hotel that has the waterbed, the, uh, the concierge is showing them around and is like, 
this is the modern times suite, mm-hmm. you know, again, to speak to the cinephilia of the Hui brothers, you know, calling out a little chaplain, which mm-hmm. uh, is apropos in a movie that, yeah, has people like putting turkeys on their heads and shit, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there really is, yeah, this this great link to the slapstick of, of the past in it. And in in particular as well, one of one of my favorite moments of, of the private eyes is a kind of old school, very like lowbrow gag, which is when uh, Wong poses as a TV repairman to like get in, you know, some case mm-hmm. he's working on, and he bursts into basically like a training facility for bad guys, uh, <laughs> yeah. and it's you know it's like all these really tough guys are just like training in kung fu. And he's way out of his depth. And, you know, the boss is like, all right, we're going to like, we're going to kick your ass. Like, what are you, what are you doing here? You know? And he calls for junior. Right. And then behind these curtains, a gigantic man who is eating a whole cantaloupe uh, emerges. (laughs) And then they call for King Kong, which is a tiny little man who's eating a whole watermelon (laughs) as he emerges from the curtain. And then he just starts beating Wong with a stick. And it's like really fucking funny. And again, it's like the antithesis of Bogdanovich I was thinking about this too like Michael Hui is fucking humiliating himself every second of this movie his character is unlikable and neurotic and shrill and annoying and cheap and exploitative and he's constantly having himself just absolutely owned and fucking clowned by everyone in the movie right so Mm -hmm. it is this yeah much more kind of I guess, humble or, or humility in, yeah, he's making the people of Hong Kong laugh by being like constantly humiliated, like being left out on a rope ladder on the side of a building with no pants on, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and again, like to that point, I mean, it's the thing about the Hong Kong, the, the golden age of like the Hong Kong action comedy cinema that this is very much a part of that I have always like tried to stress to my students, like what makes them uh, so so great is that you know Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, Michael Hui. When when these guys were all kind of coming up together, and and people sort of asked them, and over the years have talked to them about their influences, they weren't influenced primarily by, you know, oh, well, you know, when Bruce Lee became a huge star, that was a big opportunity for us to enter into, you know, international attention. Like, they talk about their influences being Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, Charlie Chaplin. I mean, Jackie Chan specifically has said, like, I want to make Harold Lloyd movies, you know? And it's such a great display for me of that legacy, you know, of the great silent comedy, more so than, you know, Peter Bogdanovich and They All Laughed, which feels to me more like a screwball comedy. But like, when I try to say to my students, you know, if you're looking for a more modern or contemporary, you know, through line from the great physical comedians of the silent era, watch Hong Kong action cinema. Like, that's what these guys are doing. The Kung Fu is almost incidental 
to the physical comedy, right? It's sort of like how you get out of a tight jam, but really it's more, you know, how we can manipulate the environment in that almost Keystone Cops way, you know? Speaking of the Keystone Cops, how about the Hong Kong police with their uh, sort of like knee-high rubber boots and shorts, you know, just like this very (laughs) horrific kind of like English colonial style of police uniform. And there's just like gaggles of them running through corridors with, you know, like chickens with their heads cut off in this movie. Mm -hmm. Also very enjoyable. Yeah. One of my favorite moments of the martial arts being in service of the kind of Keystone Cops type comedy was that sequence. uh, It's like Lee is in a bit of a tight jam when he's sharing the bus with those tough mobster dudes that later pull off the movie theater heist. And he has like a bottle from his bottle factory or whatever like between his knees. And in order to open it, he grabs the man next to him. He grabs his head and like shoves it down over his crotch where he has the bottle resting and then like breaks off the uh, the bottle cap using that man's teeth. And that was a remarkable display of both just quick agility and then just a way to insult these men to the point where they won't even touch him as he gets off of off, off of that bus. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the essence of it, you know, and, and Chaplin had always stressed that. It's how we manipulate the milieu, you know, how mm-hmm. we can take a, a great performer and put him in a room filled with things and objects and and create comedy out of that, of a character interacting with the world around them, bringing chaos to the world around them. I guess two of, you know, thinking about all of these great physical gags does then just make me think about some of the great one-liners that are present in both films. I keep thinking about this line from The Private Eyes where one of them says, I believe as an excuse for why he's giving him such little money for lunch to the point where they can't even afford rice. He says that if you if you eat rice, you're going to get a bunch of hemorrhoids. And his line is, name a person with hemorrhoids who doesn't eat rice. And it does like stump them after he says that, which is just such an odd thing to say to a human being. And then I did love near the end of They All Laughed when Leandopoulos, who again, is having this just transparent affair with his secretary. One of the recurring gags is that Leandopoulos's wife keeps calling the offices and is being fielded by the secretary. And it's a standard, you know, oh, tell her I'm not here. I went out for lunch situation. And she tells Mr. Leandopoulos that his secretary says, It's Mrs. Leandopoulos. Could you tell her I'm not here? You tell her. Hello? I'm not here. I'm terribly late. I'll call you later. There. Uh, Which is, yeah, just a nice inspired, very much felt like something out of a 30s film. Yeah, there's a lot of really good hard-boiled banter throughout They All Laughed. You know, like, if if all the jokes and, and most of the comedy are really in private eyes coming through... A lot of, you know, again, interaction with the world and, and physical comedy. Uh, yeah, they all laughed. It's 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 a joke a second as well, but it's in what characters are are saying to one another. To take nothing again from the the aforementioned John Ritter Pratt falling, but but yeah, it's like it's in what characters say. Now, most of it's clever, but my favorite line isn't really clever at all. Um, I just fucking loved it for some reason. 
So Ben Gazzara, when he's, you know, he's like a, a divorced man and he has these two daughters and there's this scene where, you know, he's showing how much he loves his daughters. You know, he's like walking them to school or something like that. And he's listening to his, his two daughters talking about some argument that they were having. And then Ben Gazzara just says to them at one point to like, you know, impart some fatherly wisdom to them. Uh, he just says, don't worry about it. This is little kid shit. <laughs> and I just was cracking up, you know, I was like, what a fucking, what a cool dad, you know, don't worry about it. This is kid shit. You know, saying that to like a 10 year old to me right. is like a, a psychotically like funny thing. You know? And his kids are very funny too. It, it is like kind of a classic Hollywood bit where uh, they're constantly repeating each other. What about Christy? Ah, Christy, Christy, Christy. Christy, Christy, Christy. Do you always say that, Daddy? Why do you do that? It's so cute. I don't know why I do that. I haven't seen him for two days. It's been two days, Daddy. Shut up, idiot. Stop repeating everything I say. I'm not. You are. Well, maybe she has the same thought. You keep beating it to it. I have the same thought. It's very boring. And this, like, comic motif uh, that runs throughout the movie. Uh, and there, yeah, again, I mean, it's just, like, full of full of great performances, really, like, top to bottom. The girls are, are very funny as well. Yeah, they were, Molly was very perceptive and was acknowledging the fact that they were so funny and witty that she said, those have to just be Bogdanovich's kids, right? And then it was at the yep. end credits where that gets revealed, so that was another funny little touch. But even some of these lines, you know, some of them are, are silly and funny, but I was really moved at the end, especially with a lot of the lines exchanged between Ben Gazzara and Audrey Hepburn. There's a really nice shot of them in bed together, and they're just sort of thinking about this romance disappearing and ending. And it almost feels like the end of this film, the end of They All Laughed, feels like saying goodbye to a certain type of Hollywood romanticism. And there's a really nice moment where Audrey Hepburn goes quiet and starts like looking off into the distance, even though it's such a tight shot on both of their faces in the bed. And Ben Gazzara says, Where'd you go just then? Everywhere. And even at the end of the film, when he's saying goodbye to Audrey Hepburn and they have their formal public goodbye um, as she's about to get off in a helicopter and return to her British, you know, tycoon husband. He, he mentions that I knew this was all too good to last. And this film, that ending does feel like Bogdanovich almost saying that thinking about this type of love that he has on screen, I knew it was all too good to last. He's saying goodbye to a certain type of Hollywood, to his own cinephilia attachments. He can't let go of these spirited films from the 30s and 40s, but yet part of him does know that as much fun as we may have running around and following this stuff, perhaps it was too good to last. Well, I think the, the weird cursed irony in it is that Bogdanovich felt that this was a beginning for him, you know, that this film was the beginning of a new romance, you know, a new, a new love with Dorothy Stratton. And, yeah. you know, that, that while making it, I, I think he was thinking like, Hey, I got all these great people together. We're having such a good time. Like the party's never going to end, you know, we're just getting started here, but yes, in retrospect now, that's what I mean. It has this really kind of strange elegiac quality to it. It is, in that sense, almost like the perfect, you know, end of the new Hollywood era uh, feel to it, you know, that it is like saying goodbye to so much 
without knowing that they were saying goodbye, as you put it. Yeah. One interesting connection, too, that makes it, you know, even more of a, of a family affair. And I, I mean, I think certainly, you know, it being the last film of Hepburn also, like, reinforces that kind of, like, end of some kind of era, certainly, right? And, of course, she belongs more to the classical era than Bogdanovich does. But, I mean, that's a huge thing in and of itself. As you see her just, like, fly away in a helicopter, you're like, all right, Audrey Hepburn's, like, not in movies anymore. Uh, But (laughs) one of the characters that is part of, you know, all of these hijinks that we haven't brought up is uh, Dolores' neighbor, Jose, who is this young, handsome, bearded man and he's played by Sean Hepburn Ferrer, the son of Audrey and Mel Ferrer, of course. Uh, so another just like real, you know, small vibe. We're hanging out. We got the kids in the movie, you know, like that kind of sentiment, you know, you can feel throughout. Yeah, maybe a little saccharine, you know. I know uh, Dave Kerr uh, ripped Bogdanovich a new asshole, you know. Uh, in his capsule review uh, over his excessive sentimentality. But um, I'm not sure I agree. I think it is, you know, Bogdanovich at his sort of warmest, you know, and and whether that's cursed or not, you know, that's uh, that's for you to decide. Yes. Shitty private eyes. I got to come back to it again. All these are bad (laughs) private eyes. These all the, the, the private eyes you guys brought me, uh, Though entertaining, though uh, at times uh, emotionally touching, uh, these are are private detectives that I would steer clear of if I ever needed to find a missing loved one. I wouldn't hire either of these agencies. Uh, They wouldn't even be on my my long list, I, I would have to say, after all this. Although, you know, by the end of The Private Eyes, there is, there is some development, right? First of all, Lee's proven himself, of all of them, to be actually quite capable. He obliterates several people using a plunger and then does a Weekend at Bernie's-style gag with an unconscious body to get all of the gangsters into a, an ice cream truck freezer where they are then frozen and delivered to the police. Um, and in the midst of all this chaos, Wong has broken his leg from a banner that fell at the movie theater hijack terrorist incident. And uh, he recovers to discover that that Lee and, and uh, Puffy have made a new detective agency. Yeah, the, the Canon Detective Agency. <laughs> now, I'd hire the Canon Detective yeah. Agency. I'll take them. I'm not hiring Mannix, though. I want, I want Canon. That's what I want. And there is a there's a, a great moment at the end, you know, a grace note where Michael Hui looks to his his secretary, who he's belittled the entire movie, and says, uh, "Am I have I been like a an asshole? Yeah. Have I ever given you a? When's the, he says, what is the last time I gave you a raise? Never. And she's like, yeah, never. <laughs> so there's yeah, there's a glimmer of recognition that in the end, Wong may, you know." Maybe I've seen the error of his ways and I'll kind of, you know, again, they strike a 50-50 deal to merge Mannix and Cannon. And I suppose that then threatens your ability to hire them because if Wong's there, you got trouble. Well, I guess if both of these films weren't necessarily 
effective advertisements for their respective detective agencies. Andy, are there maybe some other PIs you would recommend uh, that our listeners hire to get, to get their own um, investigations into infidelity or any other <laughs> wrongdoing that they need to have accomplished? I mean, look, don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, the movies are full of other uh, very questionable private investigators. I think you find a lot of them out there. Uh, guys who get in too deep. Guys who get in over their head. Guys who uh, blow up the whole case and, and, and lead to a, a lot of people getting killed or maimed along the way. Uh, so I don't necessarily just want to single these two detective agencies out. But, but yeah, you know, uh, we have, I think we're all big fans of... Of a, of a film uh, with, a, with a great P.I., even if he's a reluctant P.I., and that would be Carl Franklin's Devil in a Blue Dress, starring Denzel Washington. I am a, a, a big yeah. champion of that, of that film. In fact, I think we all saw it at a Noir City together, where we Carl did. Franklin was, was in attendance. I think we've referenced that on, on the pod before. So I'm a big fan of that one. Um, a screening that we've attended that is now immortalized on a Criterion uh, bonus feature. Oh, really? That's in the bonus features? Yeah, on the Devil in the Blue Dress Criterion edition, the, that Q&A is present. Well, the, the very first movie that my parents took me to when I was a wee lad was a film with a private investigator featured prominently. And that would be... Who Framed Roger Rabbit? And I think Bob Hoskins, as a result of me seeing that film at such a, an impressionable young age when my brain was still being formed, when I think of like the classic private eye, I just picture Bob Hoskins from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, I love that movie. I think it's a, it's a great movie. It's one that plays a, such a huge part in my own like growth as a, as a cinephile. Um, but I'm also a very big fan of Gene Hackman in Arthur Penn's Night Moves. I oh, think, yeah. again, a, a sort of questionable private eye in that film, Very. a guy who gets a little too involved perhaps with uh, what he's investigating. But but yeah, I think uh, Gene Hackman is, is, is another... Um, uh, just, just great example of of private eyes in, in cinema. I think he's played a few private eyes. He certainly has throughout his career. So those would be some of my my top picks. Well, it was my turn to pick. I think Ryan, you're up next. What do you got for us next week, buddy? It's funny that this week was inspired by the great outdoors because my topic is also sort of inspired by my own reaction to watching The Great Outdoors. And especially now after having watched They All Laughed and seeing all of these stars harmonizing with each other and everyone falling in love and there being such love in the air, I couldn't help but think about the subplot from The Great Outdoors, the towny romance with the, the A&W root beer girl, as you had described it, Andy. And just thinking about what a waste of time that was and how much that part of the movie sucked and took away from the enjoyment of it. And it got me thinking then about other films that feature summertime flings and summer romance, both with, you know, towny folks or just general vacation 
summertime love and you know molly's gonna be out of town next week so i i it'd be nice to maybe have that romantic itch scratched so i was thinking how about you two bring me some some summertime flings let's uh let's take a look at some love in the air in this uh on these warm summer days clearly the passing of olivia newton john who sang summer loving you know the 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 great anthem of summertime flings has got you all in your feels so so we'll do our best we'll do our best yeah in honor of Olivia as always you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send an email to Marsh's Mailbag at Gauntlet Movie Podcast at gmail.com thanks everyone Charles I was trying to reach you Mrs. Martin appears to have left Mr. Martin she left him a note anyway Where'd she go? It was my fervent hope that you would have that answer, Charles. After all, Mr. Martin is paying us for precisely that answer. What do you mean, where did she go? Didn't you follow her this morning? What is it, your day off? I lost her. That's wonderful news. Up around City Hall. They just disappeared. I looked and looked. Who's they? She and Jose. They had luggage. Who's Jose? Boyfriend? Well... Guess you could say that. Guess I could say that. Charles, you're not making any sense. I want you to find out where that woman is, and I want you to find out quickly, because if we don't find out, it's going to be very difficult for Mr. Martin to justify paying us. It's been a wonderful morning so far. And Yoda's case is ending. I didn't tell you that. Oh, you didn't? Go ahead, gentlemen. Find that Martin girl. What are you waiting for? Arthur, call a few places for a new secretary. Amy has left us. Yoda said, I'll do it two weeks. Has to get back to London Center, this thing. I don't know. We'll be in around midnight. They're all leaving tomorrow. Uh-huh. John, what? Oh, uh, she'll be back, Leon. You think so? Sure. I guess you must have guessed about... Since the beginning. When? Three years ago. When? You've known about this for three years and never told me? Yeah, that's right. My God. Everybody's known. I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh. Well, who does? <laughs>